Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's so good to be with you and thank you for your support, your prayers, your financial commitment to the work that we're doing in Weymouth. Uh, Being friends with Clint and Kevin has been so helpful. And I'm really looking to your church as a model of what it looks like to plant a healthy church in greater Boston. So thank you for your faithfulness. I know that church planting work is exciting, but very hard, but it is precious in the sight of the Lord. And for the last 2000 years, since the day of Pentecost, the Lord has just been saying to his people, do it again, do it again, do it again. And so you're doing a good thing and I'm praying for you and I hope that you're encouraged. Well, would you turn in your Bible with me? Keep your Bible open if you closed it to Luke chapter one. We'll look at this story here, this Advent story. And like every other Christmas story, every Advent story, this one comes with a hurdle that the preacher has to jump over. And that's familiarity. Because most of us are probably familiar with this story. If you're a Christian, you've heard this story time and time again, repeated probably every December in some way, shape, or form. And even if you're not a Christian or if you're new to the church, you're probably familiar with this story. You know, people still play, you know, Silent Night in Target. So it's relatively out there in the culture still. So this story is familiar to us. And so there's a hurdle of familiarity. We can kind of check out, assuming that we know the story. But I think this story comes with an even higher hurdle than other Christmas stories, because it's about Mary. And Mary comes with baggage. And it's actually not her fault. It's our fault. Because few people in the Bible are as misunderstood as Mary. Catholics tend to overappreciate her. Protestants tend to underappreciate her. Catholics put her on a pedestal, elevating her to a place she doesn't belong, but then the Protestants came and knocked her off the pedestal and demoted her to a place that she doesn't belong. And I think this story actually solves both problems. It allows us to value Mary without venerating her, to admire her without adoring her, to learn from her walk without worshiping her, and to follow her example as she follows the Lord. And so revisiting this story, it's kind of like restoring an antique to its original beauty after years of neglect and misuse. I don't know, maybe you've restored like an old classic car that was sitting in the garage for 10 years to its, its original form. Or maybe you've restored like an old family heirloom to its original beauty after years of neglect sitting in an attic. That's what we're going to try to do in this story this morning. We want to see the beauty of the original. What is here? What happens here? And why does it matter to us? And we'll see that it's a story about God's grace coming to an ordinary young woman. It's a story that not only tells us how Jesus was conceived in the womb of a a virgin, but also what it means to follow him as our Lord and our Savior. If you were to take out a highlighter and just highlight one main line, one main point in this sermon, it would be this, that the only way to receive God's grace is with humility, trust, and obedience. In order to show you that, we'll look at two views of God's grace from the passage. First, we'll view the story from the inside. What did it mean to Mary? And we'll be like a fly on the wall, listening in on her conversation, on the conversation between the angel Gabriel and Mary. But then we'll, t- we'll step back and we'll take a view from the outside and we'll view this story. What does it mean for us? 
How does it help us follow Jesus? What does it mean for our discipleship? Well, first, let's take a view of God's grace from inside the story. How does the story start? Well, we learn right away that this is no ordinary story. It starts with an angel. Angels are spiritual beings that serve as God's messengers. And this angel, we learn in the, in the first verse there, verse 26, his name is Gabriel. And Gabriel's in the driver's seat of the story. He's moving the story forward. So it's not an ordinary story, but it includes an ordinary person, Mary. And right away, in the, two, in the first two verses, we learn three things about Mary. One, we learn that she's from Nazareth, which is a small town. So she's a small town country girl. The second thing we learn is that she's betrothed. She's engaged. So she's in a wonderful time of life. The third thing we learn is that she's a virgin. And Luke tells us two times in the first two verses so that we get the point. He emphasizes the point that Mary is a virgin. So that's how the story starts. An angel sent from God to a small town country young woman. What happens when they meet? Look at verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. It's a warm greeting. It's a friendly greeting. But it kind of freaks her out. Look at verse 29. But she's greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what kind of greeting this might be. She's greatly troubled. It means that she's, she's confused. She's caught off guard. She wasn't expecting this. And she's trying to sort out and figure out what's going on. She's afraid. And so Gabriel says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You know, when we read the Bible, sometimes we might think that these people in the Bible, the, the people in the Bible during biblical times, they're just nothing like us today. This is just some distant world, and there's this huge gap of experience. We might think that this was either just a time when God was more active, supernatural things were just happening on a more regular basis, or if you're more skeptical of the Bible, you might think that these are just naive, ancient people who just interpreted everything supernaturally. But the Bible doesn't allow us to believe either of those things. They were ordinary people that lived ordinary lives like us. They fell in love, they raised families, they worked, they tried to enjoy their lives. So there's a reason why every time an angel shows up in the Bible, the people are afraid. It's because it wasn't normal. They didn't expect it. So when it does happen in the Bible, we should pay attention. So that's Mary's reaction. What about Gabriel's greeting? Look at verse 28 again. He says, greeting, O favored one, and now jump down to verse 30. He says it again. He said, Mary, uh, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Well, what does it mean to be favored? To be favored is to be someone who receives God's grace. In fact, the word favor is just another word for grace. Unfortunately, there was an old Latin translation that has caused confusion in the Christian church for hundreds of years. They misinterpreted this verse, verse 28, and they said that Mary was full of grace. And maybe some of you grew up reading a Bible that said Mary was full of grace. But that's actually not what it says. She's a favored one because she's receiving. So it's not that Mary has grace in herself, she's full of grace and now she can give it to whoever she wants. Rather, she's receiving something from God. She's receiving grace. 
That's what it means. You know, so throughout Luke's gospel, throughout the entire Bible, a favored one, a blessed one, is not someone who gives, but someone who receives from God. Let me just show you this from Mary's own mouth. Jump ahead to verse 46 of chapter 1. Look at verse 46. This is her song of praise. And Mary said, My soul uh, magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Well, why will they call her blessed? Look at verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. See, Mary knows that she's blessed because of what God has done for her. It's not that she's full of grace. It's that she's received it. And so she responds with praise and thanks to God for giving her grace. And that, it can be hard for us to grasp this concept of grace because we, our default position seems to be, we think in terms of, you know, you get what you deserve. And so if God's good to someone, well, it must be because they deserved it. But that's actually not grace. Grace is not getting what we deserve. Or gra grace is receiving what we cannot earn. Grace is not being rewarded for what we've done. And so grace tells us two things, at least two things, that we need what we cannot get, and God gives what we do not deserve. And so Mary praises God and thanks God for his grace because she knows that she does not deserve it and because God has been so good to her. And if you're a Christian, it's not because you deserved it. It's because God has been so good to you. So what will the Lord do through this favored one? She's favored because she received grace. Well, what did she receive? She received a son, a truly unique son. And now the story shines the spotlight off of Mary, takes the spotlight off of Mary and puts it on her son. And we learn four things about the son in just a few short verses. First, he's the son of Mary. Look at verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. We're going to talk about the miraculous virgin conception in a minute. But right here, I just want to point out that Jesus is truly human. Like every other child, Jesus developed in the womb of his mother. He received nourishment from her body. That this son has the genetic makeup and the hereditary features of his mother. Jesus is truly human. But he's not merely human. Because look at verse 32. Not only is he a son of Mary, he's the son of the Most High. The Most High is just a title for God. That Jesus is the Son of God. I know that you covered this two weeks ago, so I won't go into the point in too much detail. All I want to say is that Jesus is both, in just two verses, we see that he's truly human. He's from Mary, but he's also divine. He's God. He's the son of Mary. He's the son of God. It's not that he becomes God later. No, he is God. Jesus is nothing less than eternal God Almighty. So he's the son of Mary. He's the son of God. He's also a savior. Verse 31, we see that in the, in the name that the angel tells Mary to call this son. You shall call him Jesus, 
Jesus meaning the Lord is salvation or the Lord saves. And finally, he's, a long, he's the long-awaited king, verse 32. And just notice as I read verse 32, the emphasis is on the fact that he's everlasting. He will be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him a th- the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. I mean, Mary's mouth must have been on the ground. This is a fire hose of good news. Son of Mary, son of God. Descendant of David, physical descendant of David, and yet an eternal king. No wonder why she had a question. Look at verse 34. How will this be since I am a virgin? That's a good question. Some teachings in the Bible are easy for us to grasp. You know, it's like being in the shallow end of the pool. You can stand up on your own. You can feel the bottom. You can feel like you have your feet underneath you. Some teachings in the Bible, though, you're off in the deep end. You can't stand up on your own. There are some teachings in the Bible that stretch our mind beyond what we can comprehend. The miraculous conception of the Virgin of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin, when we get there, we're off in the deep end of the pool. The incarnation of Jesus, we're in the deep end of the pool. Our minds are stretched beyond what we can fully grasp. And rather than trying to untangle the philosophical yarn ball, it's better just to look at what's there and to acknowledge what's there. So, how will God bring about this son into the world through a virgin? How does the angel answer Mary's question? Look at verse 35. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The language of overshadows used in the Bible to describe the presence of God, the active presence of God. And so Mary became pregnant by the creative power of the Holy Spirit without a biological father. Now we have to be very, very careful here. Because remember, we're in the deep end. And so things aren't easy. I did not say that Jesus was created. As God, he's uncreated. He has no beginning. He is God. But in the womb of Mary, something miraculous did happen. God united himself with humanity. That God took on flesh, as John says, and dwelt among us. And that humanity that was united to deity was the result of the creative power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is the eternal, pre-existing God who took on real human flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. Here's what didn't happen. There was no sexual union or intercourse between God and Mary. Nothing in the story, nothing in the Bible even reeks of that. The story is characterized by decency and innocence and dignity and holiness. There's nothing crude in the story. Here's what did happen though. A new creative work of the Holy Spirit for our salvation. And the result was something that humanity had never seen before a truly holy man. 
Look at verse 35 again. What's, what's the result of the Spirit's activity? Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. So although Jesus is truly human, he's not like you or me or anyone born of Adam in this way. We come out of the shoot sinful. Ruined and corrupted by sin in the fall, we enter into the world and then we contribute to its misery with our own sin. But not this one. He's a new beginning. He's not of Adam. He's a second Adam. And therefore, he's a departure from the guilt and the corruption of the first Adam. He is a holy human, a sinless king, a divine savior, God with us. That's who he is. And do you know why it had to happen this way? Because the human race needs a savior, but it cannot produce one. And I think if we've learned anything in 2020, it's that the human race needs a savior. But we cannot produce one. In fact, that's really the story of the whole Old Testament. The human race needs a savior, but it cannot produce one. He must come from the outside and enter in. But in order to save those on the inside, he must be truly one of us. In order for sinful people to be reconciled and united to a holy God, the Savior must be both holy God and sinless human. And here he is. He's right here. He's come. Jesus Christ, Mary's Son and Mary's Lord. And since he's utterly unique, there's no one else like him and there's no one else who will ever show up like him. He is the only savior for sinners. So stop the search. Wait no more. He's here. Come to him and be saved from your sins. Come to him and be forgiven. Be reconciled to God. Come to him and receive God's grace, which is nothing less than this son. Come to him and be saved. Well, back to the story. Gabriel gives Mary two reasons to trust his word. Verse 36, that God's already brought life out of barrenness. Look at verse 36. Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. Mary, trust the word of the Lord, because this is what God does. He brings life out of barrenness. The second one is really the punchline of the whole passage. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. And maybe some of you here find it difficult to accept something like a virgin birth. And I get that. But your main problem, your fundamental problem with the Bible is actually not with the resurrection or angels or the virgin birth. If you back up, the fundamental problem is that you don't believe verse 37 that nothing is impossible with God. Because if you believe verse 37, then angels, resurrection, God becoming man and living in it just wouldn't be a problem. In fact, if you believe verse 37, we should expect to see things and witness things in history that are beyond our explanation. Because there's nothing impossible for God. 
That was certainly true for Mary. Look how the story ends. Her questions have been answered. She's more than satisfied. And so look at this great response. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. So there's a story from the inside. It's a view of God's grace from the inside. And it's a story of an ordinary woman receiving the extraordinary grace of God, which was nothing less than a son, a savior, a king. Now let's take our second view of God's grace in the story and step back and look at the story again, a couple parts, and ask, what does it mean for us? What can we learn from this story for following Jesus? And we'll just look at two things. We'll look at the humble way to receive God's grace and the submissive way to respond to God's grace. First, the humble way to receive God's grace. You know, if we, if we slow down and just look at the story again, we see that Mary keeps surprising us. Look at verse 29. She's troubled, but discerning, right? She's greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what kind of greeting this might be. And so we see in Mary that she's not superstitious. She's not expecting an angel to show up around every corner. She's confused. But she's also discerning. She's not just easily tossing aside what she does not understand. And I think we can learn something from Mary, even for our modern skeptical age. She's a thinker, but not a doubter. And that's rare to find today. She's a thinker, but not a doubter. She's someone who contemplates things in her mind. She turns them over in her mind and she considers things. In fact, Luke wants us to know this about Mary. He wants us to know she's a thinker but not a doubter. He mentions it here, but he also mentions it in two other places. Look at um, chapter 2, verse 19. I just want to show this to you. Chapter 2, verse 19. This is after hearing from the shepherds about her son. Look at Mary's response to this. She says, but married, but Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. She's pondering things. She's considering things. But she does more than just ponder. She does more than just think about things. She treasures them. Look at verse 51 of chapter 2. This is after hearing from her 12-year-old son Jesus now. Fast forward 12 years about his time in the temple. Look how she responds. The end of verse 51 says, And Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. She's someone who thinks well, who mulls things over, who discerns things, and then she delights in the knowledge of the Lord. Reason does not mean that we dismiss everything that science cannot explain. Faith does not mean that we shut off our brains. Belief in God is not the end of reason. It's actually the beginning. And we learn from Mary what's true of every follower of Jesus. That meeting Jesus allows you to think well and to think clearly. Because meeting Jesus humbles a person. And you realize that there's more going on than what you can see and touch and hear. Life is is more complex than what it appears. But there's more than that, isn't it? Meeting Jesus not only allows us to think well, it allows us to delight 
in the knowledge of the Lord, to savor his goodness, to behold him into love and enjoy what he tells us. So she's a thinker, but not a doubter. She also has genuine questions, but she's not moved to blatant unbelief. She's a questioner and not a doubter. Look again at verse 34. She asks a question. How will this be since I'm a virgin? Luke's a really good storyteller. And one thing he does is he, he takes two characters. He shows their reaction to the same event so that we learn the right way and the wrong way to respond. He already does it in chapter one because this is not the first time that Gabriel shows up in the story. In fact, just a few verses before he shows up with Mary, he showed up and surprised a man named Zachariah. And Zachariah is like but unlike Mary. I want to just show you this. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. The angel appears to Zachariah, and look how he responds. It's, it's actually a lot like Mary. Zachariah was troubled when he saw the angel. And fear fell upon him. He's troubled, just like Mary. And then he asks a question. Jump down to verse 18. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I am sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. He asks a question that expresses his unbelief, but evidently that's not true with Mary. There will be a time in our Christian life when we will come genuinely before the Lord and we will ask, God, how is this possible since fill in the blank? And there's nothing wrong with coming to the Lord with questions when the solution to a problem seems impossible. But here's what we learn from this story. There's a way to do that while still believing verse 37. There's a way to ask the Lord a genuine question and still hold on to the truth in faith that nothing is impossible for God. And that is, my friends, the fruit of maturity. So we learn from Mary a humble way to receive God's grace, thinking well, taking God at his word, trusting in him, knowing that the Lord can do the impossible, treasuring up these things in our heart. Second, we learn from her about the submissive way to respond to grace. We'll just close by looking at Mary's response one more time. Look at verse 38 of chapter 1. Look at this response. It's so powerful. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That we learn from her that we respond to grace with trust. That we take God at his word that he really can do what seems impossible. And what about you? What's going on in your life right now that's making it difficult for you to see yourself as a servant of the Lord? What's going on in your life right now that's making making it difficult for you to obey the Lord, to trust him? 
And how might that change if you walked out of here this morning with a renewed, fresh confidence in verse 37? That your God can really do what seems impossible. Well, learn from a fellow follower of Jesus. Learn from Mary. That God really can do the impossible with his dear ones who cling to his word, trust him like a child, and say, Lord, I am a servant Let it be to me according to your word. And we actually have more reason to believe verse 37 than even Mary. Because we live on the other side of the birth of this son. That history tells the true story of this son's birth, his life, his death on the cross, his resurrection. Nothing in history has been the same since the birth of this son. And that really is an irrefutable historical fact. The question that remains for us is, will we treasure this in our heart and follow him? That's the question for us. So, grace, we respond to grace with trust. We respond to grace with courage and obedience. Mary's very submissive. I am a servant of the Lord. But that doesn't mean she's not brave. She's both submissive and courageous. In fact, Her courage is revealed in her submissiveness. It took a lot of guts to do what she did. She knew what it meant for a woman in her time to get pregnant before the wedding day. She was well aware of what that meant for her in her time and her culture. And what would Joseph think? And what would my neighbors think in small town Nazareth? She knew that Shame and disgrace and misrepresentation was her future because of her association with this son. And yet she trusts and obeys. And today we don't think of submissiveness and courage as friends, right? We think of them as enemies. We don't put those things two together, especially for young women. You know, courage today is viewed as the opposite of submissiveness. But here, Mary surprises us. She's got guts. She's got courage. She trusts the Lord and moves forward when it's hard. And she's a model of submission to the Lord. And that is very precious in the sight of God. Following Jesus will require the same response from you. Courage, obedience, humility, submissiveness. There's always a social cost to following Jesus. Later on in Luke's gospel, he'll tell his disciples to count the costs of following him. Then after counting them, to pay it because he's worthy. And that we too risk shame and disgrace and misrepresentation because of our association with this son. So let's take our cue from Mary. Let's take God at his word trust in his son, abandon any hope for favor or standing in this world, die to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And when we do, he will prove that nothing in this world can compare to receiving the Father's grace and knowing his beloved son. So although years of neglect and misuse have veiled the beauty of this story, 
Here's what we've seen once we dust off the antique. We see that it's a beautiful story of a humble country young woman who's a good thinker, not a doubter, who has genuine questions, who wants to be used by God even though it seems impossible, and who counts the cost but obeys anyways. And so rather than her being some angelic figure with a halo on her head, as we see in stained glass windows and on statues and people's front lawns, she's actually someone who is like you and me. And because of that, we can actually learn a lot from her. But we must never stop there. We can look to her example, but we must look past her to her great son and worship him alone and trust in him, the one who can truly do what seems impossible. Let's pray.